you would turn with me to Jonah chapter 3, that's page 775 of your pew Bibles. It's not a very long chapter, so I'm going to read the whole thing, but we'll be looking at the second half today. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I don't know how many of you follow this. There was recently a good bit of press over a revival that took place at uh, Asbury University in Kentucky. I don't know how many of you saw that. Uh, but even the secular media was talking about it after a while uh, because what started as, I think, a, a routine chapel service uh, just didn't seem to end. Uh, now, I've sat through chapel services at Westminster Seminary and elsewhere that seemed endless, but uh, this service literally lasted for days 24-7 for like two straight weeks. Uh, so that's one heck of a prayer meeting. My father spent a, a brief while as a Pentecostal in the, well, I guess this was the 70s. He was in his 20s, I think, and when he first got saved, he, he spent some time as a Pentecostal. And I think it was the all-night prayer meetings that really get to you after a while. And uh, my mother, who was his girlfriend at the time and was from a mainline Presbyterian church, uh, was not very fond of those meetings. Maybe that's partly why he became a Presbyterian. I'm not sure, but I can't pray for that long. I get tired, and I run out of words uh, pretty quickly. I remember one year in my youth group, we did one of these 30-hour famine things for, for World Harvest, and uh, we, we all had a sleepover at the church, and they had us getting up in the night to take two-hour prayer shifts in the chapel. And I didn't do very much praying, if I'm honest, at 3 a.m. That wasn't really happening. I kind of felt like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. I could relate. Um, yeah, I, I fall asleep even now at bedtime prayers, and they're not nearly that long. But anyway, uh, this chapel service at Asbury went on for two weeks, and it sparked a debate in some church circles, and particularly online. People were asking, is this a true, legitimate revival or something else? 
Was this the spirit at work, or was it just an emotional thing? Was it orchestrated? Was it a manipulated thing? I'm not here to answer that question this morning, and frankly, I don't know. Uh, my gut tells me that, you know, some good things have to come out of a two-week worship service at some point, uh, but it's also possible that some of the people involved here were just having an emotional experience, and it was more emotional than spiritual. That's possible. Did it change things in the culture in any noticeable way? And not in Pennsylvania that I've noticed. Uh, but I'm not really qualified to say anything definitive about all that. But similar questions, I note, have been asked about revivals throughout history. When I was at the recent Presbytery retreat, uh, Dr. Langberg mentioned that one of the most upsetting things about the Rwandan genocide is that it came pretty close on the heels of a widespread Christian revival in that country. Which, of course, makes you wonder, like, well, where'd the spirit go? Was that a genuine revival after all? Uh, Georgia and I went to see the recent film Jesus Revolution, which uh, you know, it's worth going to see just if you want to see Fraser baptizing people in San Francisco Bay. It's kind of interesting in that way. But uh, the movie is a treatise on the Jesus people movement uh, back in the 60s and 70s when so many hippies were professing Christ. And it was definitely kind of a weird movement in some ways, and there were some maybe problems lurking under the surface of the movement. The movie touches on some of that, but uh, I grew up in a church full of people who met Jesus in those years. Uh, my parents were a product of that time as well. So I, I can say with certainty that some people were legitimately changed back then, even if some of it got weird. So was that a genuine revival or not? Well, what does a genuine revival actually look like? I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't answer that in those exact words specifically, mostly because it doesn't use the word revival in the same way that we do all the time. Uh, we, we tend to mean a particular thing by it. But it has examples of what we mean by it. Um, when we talk about it, we, use an, uh, we, we, we say revival and we mean sort of an unusually large turning toward God, uh, a phenomenon where many people turn away from what they had been doing and they begin seeking God's face. In other words, sort of the central event in any revival, the definition of revival is not the, the great music or an emotional experience. Those things are great, and that's fine, but the key element is, is mass repentance. And repentance means admitting you were wrong. And that's what Nineveh does at the preaching of Jonah. That's why I wanted to reread some of that. But uh, what does it say in verse 5? The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, just for fun, how many of you people like admitting that you're wrong about anything? No? Okay. I don't like it. The most frequent reminder that I have to admit that I'm wrong is, is being married does that for you. Um, <laughs> I think admitting that we're wrong about something is pretty hard, but it's even harder to say I've been wrong about everything uh, and that's pretty much what repentance and coming to faith is like. Repentance means giving up what you were doing and what you were clinging to, uh, what you had believed about God and Jesus, uh, how you were living your life, and repentance changes everything. And because of that, repentance is difficult. You would only do it if you had no other choice. In other words, you have to be desperate before you repent. The prerequisite of revival is desperation. 
The Apostle Paul talks about having godly sorrow for your sins. That's how he words it in 2 Corinthians 7. It is godly sorrow, says Paul, that leads to repentance. So my question is, when you look at this, do you think that the Ninevites had godly sorrow? It sure sounds like it to me. Uh, They're fasting and they're wearing sackcloth. That sounds like a desperate thing to do. The revival looks genuine on the surface, right? Uh, And I say this because neither of these things come naturally. Fasting, fasting's not my favorite thing. (laughs) Dieting makes me sad. I don't mind skipping breakfast occasionally or lunch, but I like to eat. Many of you can testify to that. I know how to eat my feelings with the best of them. When you see that scene in Forrest Gump where he, he's in Vietnam and he's talking about how the best part of being wounded is that he gets all the ice cream he can eat. I'm like, I can relate to that. It's almost worth it. Fasting is something you would only do, especially on a moment's notice, because you were desperate, because something urgent came up. And speaking of sackcloth, I'm not exactly into fashion again. Most of you can tell that. You've known me long enough. But I do like to dress comfortably, even if I don't know much about fabric and things. And Georgia, she loves textiles. Uh, She can go through the thrift store just with her hand and feel the fabric, and she knows what it is by touch because she's weird. And um, there's a wide range and variety of textiles and ways of of, of making things, right? Um, But even a simpleton like me knows that sackcloth is not the highest quality. It's not what you would typically wear, right? Uh, You make sacks out of sackcloth because it doesn't matter if the potatoes are comfortable, right? You don't make clothes out of sackcloth because not only will it look terrible, it will feel terrible. It's an itchy, constant reminder of your discomfort. So why do the Ninevites fast and wear sackcloth? They do it because they're desperate. They are displaying real sorrow for their sin. Because it's hard to say sorry while you're eating ice cream on a leather couch wearing silk PJs. Who would take that seriously? And Nineveh's repentance is remarkable. It's a response, as we've said, to this harsh preaching of Jonah, the worst missionary of all time, right? A preacher who had no love for his listeners, who wants these people to die. And he brings a message from a God that they don't believe in. And Assyria, of which Nineveh is the capital, right? It's the dominant regional power. It would naturally consider their gods to be far superior to Israel's God in every way. So it's not only psychologically hard to understand, it is politically almost insane because they're bowing before the God of a lesser nation. It is always hard to apologize and change your ways, but it is even harder if you don't like or trust the person that's telling you to change, if you don't respect them. I can apologize to my wife and admit I'm wrong. I'll be slow about it, but I will eventually get around to it. Why? Because I love her and I trust her and I think that she wants the best for me. So eventually I will listen to her. But Nineveh responds to Jonah. They don't know him. He's kind of a jerk. And yet... They believe God, not Jonah, and they cry out like desperate men and women. Clearly the Spirit is at work 
in the people of Nineveh. But then another remarkable thing happens, and the political leaders take up the same cry. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. I kind of love that part. Because it sounds to me like the revival starts as a popular movement, but the king, a little late to the party, not very, uh, he has to be a little extra about it, right? Uh, Someone tells him that the people are fasting and wearing sackcloth, and he steps in and says, tell you what, I'll wear the sackcloth, and I'll sit in ashes, and I want the nobles to join me, and all the rich and the poor, and just for good measure, put sackcloth on the animals too. Like even the cows are going to fast now. Sounds like the kind of thing a politician would do. But the thing is, the king's repentance does seem genuine. Because he doesn't exempt himself. He leads by example in the process. But I want you to notice that the revival in Nineveh starts as a popular movement. And it begins, first of all, with God's word being preached, right? We've talked about that before. And even though Jonah isn't very good at this, the word is the catalyst. It's sort of the spark, the fuse. And the Ninevites believe God and take him at his word. And it's, it's not some televangelist revival with staged healings, right? Revival in that sense doesn't even feel like a revival when you see it. Revival doesn't start with a spiritual high and blessings being showered. It starts in the ashes. Nineveh's revival starts at the bottom in every sense of the word. The people repent first, the politicians catch up, and the repentance starts in the dirt. Why did this work? How did the people of Nineveh know to listen to this strange man? Well, on one level, people inherently know that they're sinful. I mean, how many of you needed to be taught to sin, right? Even before you tell somebody they're a sinner, they know they're sinful. They may live in denial of it. Uh, a lot of us will will admit it, but we have euphemisms for it, right? Um, I'm a broken person. Uh, I, I'm easily led astray. I'm, I'm weak-willed, wayward. Uh, I struggle with things. That's a classic. I, I have some issues. I'm not perfect, but who is, you know? And all of that, when we use that language, when people say these things, it's all just code language for what the Bible calls sinful, rebellious. We are a sinful mess. Total depravity remains the only reform doctrine that requires almost no explanation. We all kind of get it, even though we try to downplay it. But only you know how messed up you really are. And knowing that I'm messed up doesn't necessarily lead to the kind of repentance we're talking about. Especially meaning if I'm not desperate yet. If you tell me I'm rude and I'm insensitive and I'm a jerk, uh, a piece of me is grateful that you don't know me better than you do. Because you're not telling me anything I don't know. I'm just glad you don't know me better. 
I can still keep most of this stuff hidden. But that kind of attitude doesn't change people. It doesn't transform people. It doesn't lead to revival. And yet Nineveh, even though they don't know who this Jonah guy is, he's a foreigner who still smells like fish guts and puke probably, right? Somehow, deep down, they're listening to him and they know they deserve whatever punishment is coming. So they repent and they do it quickly and even the king and his nobles get in on it. That sounds like desperation to me. And we don't know exactly what the Ninevites had done. God says in chapter 1 that their evil has come up before me. So it's obviously pretty serious, but he doesn't clarify what exactly that means. It's pretty open-ended. We get a little more of a clue from the king's words in verse 8. He tells the people to turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. So they're not just wicked, they're violently wicked. But that's still not very specific. But what's clear is that something was rotten in Nineveh. It was bad you get the impression that Jonah must have shown up at just the right time, like when the Ninevites were really at their worst. They're at their lowest point, and the entire city feels it. So even without any explanation from Jonah, they respond. And the situation is so bad that the king jumps right in. In fact, his declaration is sort of, it's like the bulk of the chapter, right? The king hears about it. And you might expect that a king would see his people all crying in the street and wearing sackcloth and be like, all right, who's the clown who upset everybody? You know, my people are a proud people. Why is everybody crying and miserable? You would expect them to be angry that a foreign prophet who's, made, who's walked in and, and created such an uproar, right? But surprisingly, he has the same exact reaction as his people. The most powerful man in the land humbles himself like a commoner. And then in case anyone hasn't heard about the coming judgment, he sends a proclamation to get the word out. This would mean sending messengers on foot to go and read it out loud on the street corners. It's the ancient equivalent to like a Twitter account, right? And suddenly, unbeknownst to Jonah, his words, God's words, are being heard on every corner, published in every paper, and he's probably already left town. And just in case anyone isn't repenting yet, the king orders that everyone needs to start right now. The animals, too, for good measure. And the king says, don't just fast, pray. He says, call out mightily to God. Why would he say to pray? He tells them to pray because the king suddenly has a sliver of hope in the midst of this. Verse 9, well, eight, eight and a half here plus 9. Let everyone turn from his easy ways and the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Revival is where desperation and hope converge. That sounds like a contradiction, kind of like justice and mercy. But revival is not defined by music or singing or good deeds. It is defined by a broken and contrite heart that nevertheless has hope. 
it's kind of like why the, the Jesus people movement happened, right? Hippies were trying everything, all the wrong things, drugs, booze, sex, everything, right? And many of them reached a point of desperation, and that's when Jesus you know, gives them hope. And it's when they're at the bottom that there's hope. And this speech by the king of Nineveh, it's amazing. To say these words, two things must be true. You must be desperate and you must have hope. Both things have to be true. You have to believe that God is big enough and holy enough to destroy you, but you have to also believe and hope that he will be merciful, that he is both great and good. The king in this scene is every bit as desperate as the mariners were on the boat in chapter 1. He's every bit as desperate as Jonah was in the belly of the fish in chapter 2. And this in spite of the fact that the danger is not quite as tangible. The sailors, I mean, they can see the storm and the waves, right? That's kind of obvious. And Jonah, well, he couldn't see anything, but he knew he was dying down there. He knew there was a fish, right? The king of Nineveh, along with his people, they can't see the danger yet physically, but they believe the threat. They're scared. They're desperate. But the hope of the king is actually the same hope that we have seen throughout the book, the hope that he would be heard. The sailors had that hope when they cried out to God in the storm. Jonah had that hope that God would hear him from the belly of the fish. And now even the king of Nineveh is hoping that Jonah's God will hear him. They believe that this foreign God whom they have never worshipped is powerful enough to destroy them, would be right to do so, but also that he might hear them through their, though they're strangers, he might have mercy and let them live. Revival is where desperation and hope converge. It starts in the ashes, but it looks up. And the craziest thing is that God does listen. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God hears their prayers. He sees their desperate hope, and he has mercy. God's anger was very real, but so was Nineveh's repentance. God is a just and holy God. He is infinitely just and merciful at the same time. But true repentance always results in God's forgiveness. That doesn't seem to make sense. His justice and his mercy are a mysterious contradiction that only makes sense in the light of the cross where justice and mercy met and shook hands. The gospel means that our great God is also a good God, that an infinitely holy God will not turn away desperate sinners who cry out to him. Not just in large groups or whole cities at a time, but in one-on-one, -on -one, in individual lives. How many of you need that kind of revival? How many of you need a renewal of your desperate hope? I've often wished for a revival in this country. You know, you read about the Great Awakening you read about the Jesus movement. You read about what's happening in other countries now, what happens in the underground church in China. You hear about what's happening under, underground in the Middle East, in Iran. And it sounds really exciting. 
And I'd love to see that kind of movement happen in America today. I'd settle for revival just here in Allentown, right? Like I said, we're, we're about the same size as Nineveh, right, population-wise. But I don't think it'll look the way that we think it will. It won't look like a Christian concert, like music fest, but with street preachers, right? And it doesn't start with electing the right godly leaders or changing the right laws or building bigger church buildings. Revival looks like people coming in tears before the throne of grace in Christ. It looks like desperation before God. Desperation that sees how sinful and messed up we really are, that doesn't hide our sinfulness or make excuses, but comes empty to Jesus and asks him to save us from ourselves. Real revival starts with real repentance, and it starts at the bottom, sitting in the ashes, not with a feel-good spiritual high, but realizing how low we are. It starts at the bottom and finds hope there. Revival in our nation cannot happen without repentance and revival in individual hearts. No one's ever been saved by the faith and repentance of the people around them. You need to be saved yourself. You need to repent and get saved, and then you keep on repenting as you become more and more like Jesus. That's the life that we're called to. But you've got to be desperate to live that way. You've got to have that godly sorrow. Nineveh had it here. And it wasn't thanks to Jonah. The power is not in the preacher, thank God. Somehow, Nineveh knew they were in trouble. Jonah showing up was just the tipping point. He's just the straw that broke the camel's back. I think Nineveh was desperate before Jonah got there. God sent Jonah because he had already been working on the Ninevites. He was preparing the harvest by sowing desperation and a hunger and an awareness of their sin and their need for mercy. And we may never know what that looked like this side of eternity, but it strikes me that Nineveh is not alone in this respect and that the story is old, but the desperation is just as fresh today as it ever was. I spent some time in the hospital this week. Some of you did too. You know, hospitals are busy places. Uh, they never sleep. There's a lot of people there, doctors, nurses, support staff, patients and people, but, you know, we spent most of the time in waiting rooms in the ICU. You see people of all stripes. ICU waiting rooms are kind of the, the great you know, equalizer. It's, it's a very diverse place. But everyone there has one thing in common. They are all there because of a crisis. And sometimes the crisis is small, but on the floor we were on, the crisis tended to be big. And Every day, you would see dozens of people scattered around or huddled together facing their crisis in the best way they know how. Lisa, you kept telling me my sermon should be right in itself seeing all this stuff. And I thought, this is the connection that came to mind, that the hospital ICU waiting room is a picture of desperation. That's what's happening there. People who are in trouble and know they are in trouble and they're looking for hope. The ICU waiting room is where people can no longer ignore their desperation. And that's just a picture of where the unbelieving world lives their whole life. 
Because apart from God, life is nothing but a series of meaningless crises. And in between, people just do their best to ignore the ultimate realities. And it's not until a crisis comes that people have to start asking questions and facing things. And in that sense, the only real difference between, say, downtown Allentown on a busy Monday morning and the people in the ICU waiting room is that the people in the waiting room know that they're desperate, whereas the average person on the street has suppressed that thought. We are surrounded by desperate people every day who have no way to face the next crisis in their lives. I think crisis is a way that God reminds us of the desperation that's lurking underneath everything. And if you want to see revival in your life, if you want to see revival in this church and in this city or in your country, it's time to get desperate. More desperate for Jesus. And it can start with you. And then you can ask the Holy Spirit to make your friends desperate. And to make your neighbors as desperate as Nineveh was when Jonah showed up. It's not the quality of the messenger. Revival happens when desperate hearts collide with God's word and they cry out to him. He had mercy on Nineveh. He had mercy on the sailors. He even had mercy on Jonah. And he'll show mercy to us because of what Jesus did on Calvary. The gospel means God sees you at your most horrible. He sees you at your worst and at your most desperate, and he relents. The disaster that you had coming to you, he does not do it. Because he already did it to Jesus in your place. God responds to repentance. His mercy starts with repentance. It's not about doing enough good deeds to outweigh the bad. It's just acknowledging that you're a mess, stopping where you are, and crying out to him. The Ninevites had a very limited understanding of God, yet they repented at the preaching of Jonah, of all people. Even the king stopped in his tracks and started preaching a gospel of hope. We who know Christ should do no less. The church should be a model of repentance in America. That's one of the most important things we can do. That's the best example we can set before an unbelieving world. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example in the repentance of Nineveh, Lord. Lord, we thank you because we have all tasted desperation. We have felt pain, Lord. We have known what it is like to be on the ground and in the bottom, Lord, in the ashes. Lord, teach us to look up. We pray that your hope would meet us in our despair. Lord, that's the gospel. That's why you sent your son. Teach us to come to you empty so that you can fill us and to come to you low so that you can lift us. Make us desperate for you. 
and then fill us with your hope. We ask these things in Christ's name. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.